from this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Hey everyone, welcome to Livable City. I'm your host, Jim Hodap, coming to you from a cold January day. Oops, I mean November day. It definitely feels like January out there. When I set out to create Livable City, my personal goals for it have always been to make the case to you for why we need more livable places and then motivate us to lead that change. This is what I think we need more of, and I hope you're thinking the same thing. But if it isn't quite resonating with you yet because of something I could do differently on this podcast or the community, I want you to take some time to share your thoughts with me. You can DM me on Facebook or send me an email to thelivablecity at gmail.com. I want you to know I read every single email and message that comes in, so I take your thoughts very seriously. Today's guest has me very excited because she comes with a lot of great thoughts on cities in all sizes and how to get involved. Even though she's changing cities professionally, she shares some of her stories starting with before she became a professional. So Lauren Crabtree is my guest today. She holds a Master's of Public Administration in Metropolitan Planning and Urban Affairs from DePaul University here in Chicago. She is currently the Transportation and Mobility Program Manager at the Memphis Medical District Collaborative in Memphis, Tennessee. And previously, Lauren spent six years of her career at a local organization here in Chicago called the Active Transportation Alliance. In that role, she had um, several different roles, but one of the coolest things that I that caught my eye was just her being the biking and walking ambassador to the Chicago Department of Transportation. And she would do some advising with them on pedestrian issues and various projects. Really cool stuff. While you listen to today's episode, I want to encourage you to be thinking about your own neighborhood. Picture it in your mind. What's it like? What's the street experience like? Is it pleasant to be walking and biking around it? Can you go to the grocery store without using your car, or is that a requirement? And if you can walk or bike, is it an easy experience, or do you really have to be a a choice user to do that? Uh, Do you bump into people walking around your neighborhood, and would you say you've become friends with any of them? And if so, what's a simple thing you could do with your neighbor to make it easier to be out walking and biking in the neighborhood, getting to know one another? So just keep that in mind as you listen to today's episode. So without further ado, I want to invite Lauren Crabtree, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So Lauren, um, how did you become interested in cities and the details around them? Um, So... Well, actually, it started for me with a bicycle. Um, I was in college in Memphis at the University of Memphis, and um, some friends built me a bike for my birthday. I think I was 19, and it was, like, my first non-Walmart mountain bike bike. So I started riding it around and was at first, like, really um, angry at how difficult it was (laughs) to, like, actually bike distance. Um, But I got really addicted to it and started looking at ways to create more opportunities for cycling in my life. I started volunteering at uh, the local bike co-op in Memphis, Revolutions, and um, started to try to figure out, like, how could I work in this field? So when I moved to Chicago, which was 2013, I um, looked for any kind of job in transportation and found the Active Transportation Alliance and started working uh, 
at first only seasonally as a bicycling ambassador, which was a pretty cool job. And pretty cool title. Yeah, it's a cool title. It's probably the best job I ever had. Essentially what you would do <laughs> is um, ride around on your bikes outside all day in Chicago in the summer uh, with your coworkers and talk to people about transportation and how they could get around by bike or walking or transit in the city and essentially how you could exist without having to own a car. Um, and so it just went from there. I've, I've worked in transportation ever since. That's pretty amazing. So as a kid, your bike was like your gateway drug into all things urban. And yeah. obviously you've been pretty addicted ever since then. Yeah. Yeah. It's gone beyond a hobby now. So <laughs> now it's work. And for our listeners, the Active Transportation Alliance, those not familiar with Chicago, mm-hmm. um, what's that organization like? What do they do? They're kind of the central uh, walk, bike, transit advocacy organization in Chicago land. So Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. Um, they do a lot of work. They do policy. They do advocacy. And they also have a uh, kind of offshoot called Walk, Bike, Go that does um, consulting. So I actually ended up working on that side of the program uh, or that side of the organization. Uh, and I was a consultant at CDOT for about six years, five or six years, working on their bicycle and um, pedestrian education and outreach programming. So how did that go? Like your transition from, all right, you're a child, you <laughs> get into... Well, I was 19, so... <laughs> oh, you, you weren't a child. Okay, you were. You were okay. But how did it go from like, you have an interest to now this is your job because mm-hmm. you're passionate about it. Like how did that transition into something you're passionate into a professional thing that you're doing? Mm-hmm. Go? Well, I think after working as a bike ambassador and doing the seasonal job, I first of all loved it and immediately applied when there was an opening to move into a more permanent position, uh, which I was hired for. And um, from there, I ended up managing that program for a couple of years later on. Uh, So it was was great. And then being at CDOT, I was surrounded by all kinds of transportation professionals, engineers, administrators, planners, um, you know, directors of programs and projects. And uh, I just had a lot of exposure to pretty much any kind of transportation development project that was happening in the city. So it was a very unique experience. Uh, it was really cool to, as I'll say, you know, see how the sausage was made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. It was very unique. I learned a lot. And then I ended up going into grad school for public administration at DePaul University and uh, decided to give myself that extra education as sort of a leg up to continue my career in um, public and a nonprofit transportation work. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then moving along um, to our next question. So um, this is the Bull City, the podcast, right? And mm-hmm. really, I'm really interested in teasing out um, what makes for really livable cities. So do you have one or two places that you've been that really shine as examples of this? And uh, why do you think they embody this concept? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I don't know if I would just say this city, blank city, is the livable city in my mind. Um, But there's definitely neighborhoods and places that have been in multiple cities. The first one that I can think of off the top of my head really is um, 
Barcelona, La Rambla Boulevard, where they have car-free streets and all kinds of pedestrian action and different types of, you know, small business, economic development, placemaking. There's all kinds of action. And it's really cool. So I think that that's a good example. Um, Here in downtown Memphis, uh, I live near Main Street, and I mean, it's amazing. Uh, It's a car-free street for several blocks. It has uh, trolley lines on the ground. Uh, You can walk everywhere. You can ride a bird scooter. (laughs) There's a lot of that. Um, But there's all kinds of like pockets of neighborhoods where it's just, it feels very car-free. So I keep saying that, and I guess that what I'm getting at here here is that I think for me, a livable city really boils down to the access of pedestrian access and walkability. Is it easy to get around on foot? Do you have to have a car? Because if you do, it might not be a livable city. In fact, I would venture out and say that it's probably not. Yeah, what about that, though, is... Um, particularly livable for you, right? Like, so, so you can walk around, you don't need a car. Why is that livable? You know, particularly somebody that, um, that maybe isn't, uh, familiar with, uh, traveling around a city that way, they may say like, I don't understand that. So the car free thing is really a symptom. So I think that, uh, being in a walkable neighborhood, first of all, it, it levels the playing field. So if you have to be in a personal vehicle to go get food from a grocery store or to access your job every day, that's automatically limiting, you know, what you can do with your time and your money for a large portion of the day. And if you're in a neighborhood that has the opportunity for you to be able to walk to some of these places or ride a bike or take transit, um, automatically your options are opened up. It's just about having the choice. And um, it it really is kind of a privilege to be able to be without a car, but it's also a privilege to own a car. So there's this duality that comes into whether or not you have that choice and those options. Um, But walkable neighborhoods also just provide an opportunity for organic and spontaneous interaction. You can be outside and stumble across Uh, public art that you didn't know existed or a park that you've never been to. You can have a conversation with a neighbor or hopefully a public official or someone elected officials that would, you know, should be out in the environment as well in your neighborhood. So you're, you're painting a picture basically where like you're interacting much more with what's around you immediately, whether that's like where you live or where you work or where you go to the grocery store or, or anything in between, right? Instead of going from point A to point B as quickly as possible, going into your house, closing your door and you really don't. Yeah. There's so much much that gets overlooked when you're driving past looking for a parking spot and you can't stop. But you know, there's a lot of opportunities for different types of interactions when you're on foot or on a bike. And you know, Oftentimes, it's, uh, there's a bunch of studies that show how business owners actually do better when they are in a walkable neighborhood and there's less parking spots directly in front of their business because it increases those odds for people to come inside. Absolutely. I think for a lot of like North American residents, though, like, that is so counterintuitive. Right. 
um, because we haven't been Mm -hmm. used to that for what, say, a hundred years or slightly less. Um, But still, many parts of the world, um, a lot of Europe, I think of um, a lot of Asia, um, Central, South America, still a lot of places that are exactly as you describe, right? And that's completely normal. So, like for the North American resident, you know, what do you think? what do you, what do you think would make the difference? Like, how do you undo that counterintuitiveness there? I think making uh, alternative transportation transportation as easy as possible and as convenient as possible is really going to be the key to increasing that kind of uh, mode choice here in the United States. Right now, it's generally communities are designed to be easier to get around with by a car, except for you know the handful that are the exception to that rule. So there's, you know, Chicago and New York and LA and some other cities, but, and even those all have a traffic problem. Oh, exactly. I'm staring out the window right now at the start of rush hour and I'm like, Oh yeah. Well, LA has, you know, a pretty good transit program and system, but they also have some of the highest traffic, uh, like wait times in the United States. So you're looking at both. Absolutely. However, Yeah. Um, so, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what it was like to do livability work in Chicago and uh, and what it's now like living and working in Memphis? Yeah, so, well, first of all, they're both pretty different. Moving from Memphis to Chicago was a big culture change. Uh, they have a really different sense of identity and it's a different sense of culture between the two cities. Uh, and then I moved back to Memphis seven years later, so that was also very surprising and it's been you know i've been adjusting to it Uh, so it's hard to compare the two because they're both very distinct Um, but both cities are looking at ways to innovate the livability within uh, their boundaries while they're also using limited resources meaning people and funding and time and citizen interest people are overwhelmed with different types of things that need their attention so it's hard to kind of keep that focus unless there's something really uh, personal happening. Chicago, for an example, is continuing to expand its its network for accessible bicycle and transit access. And meanwhile, Memphis is working to create vibrant neighborhoods in areas that have been separated or overlooked systemically by the rest of the city for decades. So there's a lot of work and it's different types of work, but both cities are working with a large group of collaborators from all different types of sectors, including public officials, citizens, grassroots organizations, and nonprofits. So I think collaboration is really the key to getting some of this stuff done. Absolutely. And you uh, you hit on a really interesting um, response there. So you were talking about the differences in the culture and how you're picking up on that. And so like you got used to advocating and, and working professionally in Chicago for more uh, active transportation, but uh, what are some of those different things that you noticed right away about Memphis culture where, you know, your natural inclina- inclination from Chicago is to do something, but you can't do that in Memphis. What can you give us an example about that? Mm, yeah. Can you, but can you specify like do something where natural inclination is to do something, but you can't do something in Memphis about it? Yeah, so maybe something you learned worked in Chicago for advocating, right? A technique or or um, talking to your alderman in Chicago is effective, mm-hmm. but in 
Memphis it's not, for example. Something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, so an example I think would be that Chicago has a very vocal um, bicycle and bicycle advocacy community. Um, Memphis doesn't really have such a vocal community in that in that realm of transportation. So um, that's where we need more civic involvement. Um, I've talked to local public officials here who might have an idea for a project or something in a neighborhood, say it's a park or a cycle track, uh, and they want to provide these services, but they have to generally steer their services based on what constituents are asking for. So if there's not a community voice or representation asking for these projects, sometimes they're not going to happen. Um, in Chicago, the neighborhood politics are all funneled through the aldermen, which you mentioned. So if you want a bike lane or a stop sign or speed hump added to your street, generally you're going to go to your aldermen and ask for that because they have the prerogative to then go to the Chicago DOT and ask for this kind of project. But it goes through the aldermen. It doesn't come from a city down decision-making level, not, not usually at least. Yeah. Um, so there's a difference, in other words, in like the um, evolution of the local culture and where they are on a spectrum as far as um, how you need to engage with them to get something done, right? It's, it's different and there's nuance there. Yeah, there's definitely nuance. And that's true for any type of community, even within Chicago. There's, there's differences of how you would approach one neighborhood versus another and the same in Memphis. I would also say that, right, that, you know, each city has different priorities, Memphis, uh, Memphis has a, a different history than Chicago. It has a different population makeup than Chicago. We look different. We sound different. You know, we eat a lot more barbecue here. So <laughs> there's like different things that people are more interested in right now. Um, people are definitely interested in Memphis and improving uh, uh, perceptions of safety and lowering crime statistics. And I know they're interested in that in Chicago as well. But it depends on where you are. Yeah, absolutely. I think Memphis, now I haven't been there myself, but I have read um, some articles about it and gotten a sense for it. It feels similar in respect to Indianapolis, where I lived before Chicago, where, you know, it's um, it's a city that that, is, that had fallen pretty far. It um, lost a lot of population and mm-hmm. lost a lot of economic development. And so it's, um, it's, it's somewhat open for change, right, in a way that uh, a more developed city like like New York or Chicago, um, it's different than that, right? Oh, yeah. Well, Memphis is kind of like, somebody Somebody said the words to me, Memphis is going to burst, uh, which I, I think I understand the sentiment that they were trying to get to when they said that, that there's just uh, a lot of excitement. There's a lot of energy in Memphis right now. And honestly, I think there always has been, but you can feel it when you're here. Um, there's all kinds of, new projects happening, you know, like uh, grassroots projects, community-owned projects, and then commercial and real estate development as well. So there's new restaurants, new entertainment, there's public outdoors events, there's new nonprofits, uh, but there's still a lot of, like, areas of disinvestment. Downtown right now, we don't have a grocery store. Um, A lot of destinations are still not accessible by public transportation. And while the public transportation in Memphis is reliable, has a decent citywide coverage, uh, 
it's about 70% citywide coverage. Uh, MATA, the Memphis Area Transit Authority, is underfunded by about $30 million. And so that leads to the assumption in the city that if you want to get around, you have to have a car. Um, but I will say on that note that none of these things are being ignored. The Downtown Memphis Commission is working on getting a grocery store uh, outside of East Memphis and closer into Midtown and Downtown in the Medical District. Uh, and then Shelby County Mayor Lee Harris recently proposed a, a fee of $145 for every third plus vehicle per family. And that would offer, that would generate more than one third of the funding gap right now that MATA has with only affecting a very low percentage of the population by that fee. That's amazing. I um, wouldn't have guessed that something like that would have been proposed uh, for Memphis. Well, it has to like, you know, be approved, but it's, it's innovative. It's a way to look at how do we not propose a new tax on citizens that are already taxed enough. Nobody wants new taxes. And politicians definitely don't want to like implement a new tax. So how do we bring something, bring in new funding without hurting our constituents? Absolutely. And like, how do you, how do you change momentum towards something else? Um, right. Without, like stepping too far too soon, right? Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, a chicken before the egg or egg before the chicken. I don't know how that saying goes, but it's like people are wary to fund uh, a low used, low usage transit program when they say people aren't riding transit, but people aren't riding transit unless you increase the reliability and the coverage. So if you have increased times, uh, increased service times, that requires more funding, but you're not going to have more people riding it until you have those things. So, Absolutely, yeah. And I've, I've traveled around enough to many different cities around the world to know that once you have systems that complement each other, they, they kind of, um, there's a virtuous cycle that keeps them going, right? And people love their public transit system as long as it's still effective, right? And they right. have lots of choice, but... Um, I think in the U.S. we, in particular, cling to our cars because it's literally, most of the time, all we have right now. And so when you talk about changing from that, right, it seems threatening instead of additive. Yeah. Well, totally. And there is, like, also just the fear of the unknown. Like, maybe you've never ridden a bus in the city before. And maybe you are afraid of riding with people that you've never spoken to before. But that's another part of the livability of like going out and talking to your neighbors and participating in the environment where you live. Absolutely. That's a that's a key thing. Um, is stop being afraid of each other, which I think socially the United States could use a lot of that today. I agree. Um, so uh, why do you think it's it's important for the non-planner citizen to get involved and help make our cities more livable. I mean, it sounds like Memphis is that kind of city where you can do that. So why is that really important? Okay, I'll give you an example. There's an organization called Small Change, um, and that allows for you as a citizen to um, open source invest in any kind of real estate development that's featured on this platform, of course. But it's no minimum and no caps. So if you're 18, you want to put some money towards a new development in your neighborhood that you think is cool, you can do that. And then you have the sense of, I made this happen, rather than feeling like this happened to me, which is not an unusual sentiment when 
you know, we're talking about city planning. So a lot of planners and architects and public officials and engineers, we're, we're often starting from below the line when we approach a community because historically there's been so many promises made with very little follow through oftentimes. And along with a history of intentional disinvestment and racism in, ur in urban planning. So mainly in communities of color and lower income neighborhoods. But with a diverse citizen involvement, we can make sure we're doing it right. And our constituents, the public, they can keep us in check. However, I think it is our job as planners and public officials and nonprofits to create those conversations and encourage those opportunities and find ways for them to happen and find ways for public involvement to occur in the most accessible way. So back in like the 70s and 80s, engineers could decide to do a project, whether it was a road widening or something similar like that. And oftentimes they could get an okay and go do it without really going through the due process of talking to constituents. So that can't happen anymore. Um, in fact, it actually can't with federal funding, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen still because not every project requires federal money. So uh, a large focus of my career has actually been talking to and listening to people and finding out what they like and don't like about the built environment, and what types of barriers get in the way of day-to-day -day movements and affect their quality of life. And that's the kind of public input and citizen feedback that we can take back to the decision makers and the builders, the planners, the engineers, and they in turn create a successful project that people can actually use. Absolutely, that's that's super important. Um, how much do you think, uh, or what's the right balance between um, somebody just providing feedback versus jumping in and, and taking ownership of something and leading something like, like a movement to, I don't know, um, do a new level of recycling or something like that if they're passionate mm -hmm. about it versus, mm -hmm. you know, just like, hey, city leader, this is my feedback. I want this. Go do it. Yeah, I think it depends on the project. I think it depends on the community, who's doing the project, what's the history been like in that neighborhood when it comes to um, working with the city and the built environment. You know, what's the level of disinvestment? What's the historical systematic abuse that's happened there? If there's not very much, if it's always been a pretty affluent neighborhood that has always had a voice, you know, they're probably fine with a few public meetings. But if it's a larger project and it's with a community that's been underserved historically, you need to go in there and, like, have these meetings, make sure people are heard, make sure that they, first of all, want the project and that it will be useful to them. Uh, and second, make sure that it's theirs, you know. If you put bike lanes on the street where nobody rides a bike because they think it's something that uh, wealthy people do for a hobby but they can't actually use for transportation, those bike lanes probably aren't going to get used. Yeah, absolutely. So it's important, particularly for a disinvested um, community, for them to feel a sense of ownership. And that's, you know, whether that's one local person owning it and leading the charge or um, continually reminding people at uh, public meetings, right, you own this, this is yours, like, where do you want to go, right? That's, I think yeah. there's uh, a nuance there, right? Yeah, and I would err on the side of, like, having too much information or too much feedback rather than not getting enough. Absolutely. Because it's oftentimes it's just asking questions like, what do you need? What, what do you want? And how do you want to do it? And 
even better if it's a project that can be community owned rather than something like here, we'll build this and give it to you because that's not as powerful as saying like, what do you need and how can we assist you? That's a better way to do it. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, you know, I like to think cities are not the point in and of themselves, right? They're they're things that allow us to live and to uh, get jobs and to develop relationships and know people. So if the city around you, your neighborhood, what's immediately around you is not serving you and you don't feel like you have a say in that, then what's the point, right? Mm-hmm. Right. What, what, what are some examples for opportunities, uh, do you think, to further invest in livability in, in these two cities, Chicago and Memphis? Mm, I want a downtown grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> um, not a Whole Foods, right? No, not a Whole Foods. Something where people can actually shop. The local chain <laughs> here is Kroger, so I'd be fine with a Kroger. <laughs> um, but seriously, it's those. it's like that type of amenity, that everyday life like you need to buy food type of amenity that should be located throughout the city and accessible by everyone absolutely i mean somebody so better might, to, sorry somebody might say like why not just get a car and drive to an existing grocery store that's probably i don't know three to five miles away from downtown yeah well i mean it affects your quality of living first of all like that's not pleasant if there's only a few grocery stores and you have to drive and then fight for a parking spot and then you get in and of course it's crowded because it's like, those are the only grocery stores. So yeah, great point. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what you deal with. Everybody knows how that feels, but it, I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, there are like cool opportunities for farmers markets and um, CSAs, community supported agriculture services here in Memphis. So there's different types of options. And just in general, I know that people are working on creating these kinds of uh, shared services. That's great, yeah. And and I would add that I would I would love to see more focus on some of the city and state policy in Tennessee that can make it harder to provide services. And I think honestly, that's just a lack of uh, resources, and mainly I mean people resources, because there's not always a person in charge who has the capacity to look into and to fight for the policy changes. Yeah, that makes sense. So at a state level, I mean, what would they, what would they be fighting for to, to make a real difference here in Memphis? So there's a lot of surface parking lots in Memphis, a lot of acreage, especially in the medical district where I work. And one of our opportunities there is to see how can we transform some of the surface parking lots into areas that could be better used by the neighborhoods, by the community. Uh, however, there's a really low uh, tax on parking lots. So if you have a parking lot instead of a business, you're paying a lot less for that annually than you would if it were retail or a restaurant. So one way would be to charge more for parking lots. But at the state level, you could go and say, no, this isn't going to pass. So it would be like changing the state policy to make sure that on a local level, we could have the authority to charge more for a parking lot and incentivize turning that into turning that area into something that's more useful. Oh yeah, that makes sense. So, so you're saying a policy that essentially allows, I mean, this is a specific instance around parking lots, but more local <laughs> control over something that is inherently local. 
Right. <laughs> True. Yeah. Yeah. It's I'm not a policy wonk, so I don't have all of the words and terms for this, but yeah. essentially, yeah, it, it should be easier and it's not. So one way of advocating for more livable cities is that kind of thing, right? Is um, finding some crazy state level or even federal level, if you're really feeling ambitious, that <laughs> that prevents yeah. you from um, deciding what happens around you. Um, something that's meaningful to you, right? Like how your street looks or how many parking lots there are, or how they're taxed or something like that. And, and maybe that becomes your issue, right? Right. How about in Chicago? Anything that you're aware of that's kind of like the parking lot example in Memphis? Well, I think right now the policy thing in Chicago is affordable housing. And we're, I mean, it's in several neighborhoods. We're seeing a bunch of fear around gentrification with new commercial developments and new real estate that's occurring in some of these like previously under the radar areas. And we know that like for Logan Square, for instance, that neighborhood housing prices skyrocketed and a bunch of the original uh, uh, residents had to move out. So it's happening now in Avondale and in Pilsen and in other areas. And I think the next step would be some sort of city or state housing policy to support current residents and prevent people from being, you know, uh, financed out, out of their homes by these new developments. So it sounds like it needs a local supporter to lead the charge on something like this. Yeah. And it's definitely been talked about. I'm sure that there's people who are still working on this right now in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Most likely. Um, there's a remarkable number of people like advocating and working on things around here. It's a, uh, it's a fact about Chicago that I keep running into that blows my mind. Um, so how about, um, some changes that you would make to these two cities that you think would immediately make them more livable? Ooh, I mean, that's a good question. Other than I think sort of opening the door with policy, I would, I mean, in Memphis, I would look at the sidewalks. I would love if we had millions and millions of dollars to fix all of the city's sidewalks. And that's kind of the state of affairs for every city with a sidewalk problem, is that uh, the funding it would take in order to, to fix a significant portion of the sidewalks. By the time you had that funding and were able to fix them, the same portion of sidewalks in a different area would need fixing. So it's kind of like a rolling a stone up a hill thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what about a sidewalk? Like if you've got really good sidewalks and you're taking care of them and they're fixed, right? Why is Yeah, but they have a lifespan. Right. Just the concrete themselves. Um, so right now in Memphis, there's a lot of sidewalks that are either like crumbling. Some don't have uh, ADA accessibility. And, you know, it's a project like that that needs big federal dollars to fix. Yeah. So the backlog is huge, right? Yeah. So uh, if you, if you were to, you know, say get, I don't know, $50 billion for <laughs> earmarked yeah. or sidewalks, like yeah. new ones and fixing all the current ones that are like C through F up to an A level. What, why would you advocate for that? Why would that really make a difference in the livability of Memphis? Oh, I think it would make a huge difference. I think that kind of like outdoor environment 
physical environment, just the sidewalks themselves, whether they're clean, whether they're neat, whether they're safe to walk on, that affects your perceptions of how safe is it for me to be walking down the street right now? Is it pleasant to walk down the street right now? Is it convenient? If it's not, then you're probably not going to be doing it. Uh, you know, more sidewalks, safer sidewalks could lead to more art, more parks, more places to convene, more opportunities to meet people. So we're, again, we're getting back into that kind of like walkable neighborhood feel. But I mean, I feel like start, sidewalks is a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Like you just need, right, we can't stand around in the middle of the streets the way they're currently um, done and implemented. So sidewalks right. are literally the only places in a city that you can be in public, right, and not get hit by a car, theoretically. Well, hopefully, right. <laughs> hopefully. Not always true, unfortunately. That's true, yeah. Been some yeah. examples of that in Chicago here lately. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you think uh, are some things that um, – keep Chicago and Memphis from implementing these real meaningful livability changes? Well, I think that they are, first of all. I think that both cities are implementing real and meaningful changes in livability. Uh, the MMDC, the Memphis Medical District Collaborative, again, they've created street streetscape projects that not only make the roads safer in the medical district, but they also look cool. And it makes people want to be outside, at least when it's not 100 degrees. Uh, but I do think that not having the resources immediately available to move projects along as quickly as everyone would like makes it harder. Uh, it's expensive to create new capital projects. And then sometimes there's just simply, again, aren't people around who can, who can plan and build and manage. So things ultimately get pushed on a timeline. And if there's federal funding involved, a project can end up taking years just simply due to the process of reporting and approval. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of uh, um, like prerequisites that you have to um, um, address when you're getting federal funding, right, in order to, right. to use that money. Yeah, there's a lot of barriers in place that makes just creating a project and making it happen, implementation, makes it hard. But then again, that's not always a bad thing because, again, if people could just, you know, do a project, say okay, and then make it happen, there probably would be, uh, they'd probably end up skipping a lot of that public input process. Yeah, and then producing stuff that is what nobody wants, right? Right. Yeah. So I, one thing I, I learned from living in Indianapolis was, you know, some of these changes that, that, we who love walkable places in particular um, want to accomplish. It just just takes time, right? It's like, yeah, Indy as as an example again. Indy had um, once been a really walkable place, but for many decades it went the complete opposite direction. Lost a lot of people, lost a lot of money around that, lost a lot of momentum, and to change back to that is frankly just going to take a lot of time to reverse course, right? Probably same for Memphis and some aspects of Chicago too. Yeah, of course, it's correct. And that's true all the time. And people don't like that to hear that because nobody wants to be told, uh, well, the only solution is time, but that's true for a lot of things. Uh, and Indianapolis just got like a huge BRT, bus rapid transit uh, federal funding package. It did, yes. And it just opened its uh, red line. The, the first one is actually implemented. 
that's awesome. I can't yeah. wait to check it out. <laughs> uh, apparently, all those buses have been jam-packed for weeks now. They had a good community outreach process. <laughs> they had an amazing one, yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was fun participating in, advocating for, actually. Cool. Do you have some practical advice for our listeners on how they can begin or continue to help make their places more livable? You know, as, as they're advocating for things, as they get involved, what mm-hmm. some practical things you would yeah. give to them? Definitely. I think the most practical advice is just go outside uh, <laughs> and, and talk to people. Talk to your neighbors. See what it feels like to be a community member and try participating uh, in some sort of activity from a new perspective, whether that's just doing something you've never done before or going to a new neighborhood or volunteering. Um, I know that there's a lot happening in the world right now, and there's such an onslaught of endless information that it can get pretty overwhelming. So I think what's, what I have found that works best for me is just to go find some small service I can do in my own community, in my own neighborhood, whether that's volunteering as a group or just doing some kindness on your own. So take some action, get started, do something, right? That's basically what I hear you saying. Yep. And, and make it simple. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Yep. You don't have to try and bring world peace to all of our cities all at once. Right. <laughs> um, but you can start small. And what I hear you saying is you never know what's going to happen, what's going to come from just taking that first step to get involved, right? Especially yeah. in your your locality. Totally. That's pretty practical. Um, <laughs> So listen, Lauren, this has been fantastic. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Where can all of our listeners find you online? Uh, They can find me on Twitter uh, at not Lauren, Lauren. Excellent. Well, thank you again for joining us, Lauren, and I hope you enjoyed this time. Yeah, thanks so much, Jen. This was great. You're welcome. I really enjoyed that conversation with Lauren. Lauren is such an effective and humble advocate for change to our places. So I want to try something new this week. This week, I'm going to try posting the questions here. I'm going to read them to you. In the past, I've been working to create some questions and been putting them in in my email newsletter that I send out and also on the, the Facebook group. But I'm going to try putting them directly here. I'll still have them in those other two places in text form, but I think uh, this will this will allow wider distribution to people for those that don't participate in those other areas. So first question, how safe is your neighborhood to walk in to get to places and do more than just walk for exercise? How safe is it to use your bike to get to places like a shop, to work, or to a restaurant? Have you ever tried talking to your council person, raising a concern you have, or just to get to know them? What happened? Did it go like you expected? I invite you to join and post your answers to these questions in the Facebook group. Again, as always, the link is in the show notes to the Facebook group, as well as the Twitter handle, and sign up for the newsletter. You can sign up for it by going to um, livablecity.co, that's .co, and you'll, you'll see it right on there. You can put your email address in there and stay in contact. As always, Thank you so much for subscribing. Please come back in two weeks for another episode of Livable City.